0: Good morning, everyone. Almost Merry Christmas to you. Doesn't quite feel like Christmas out there, does it, today? (laughs) I up this morning and it was almost 70 degrees on my back porch. I know, but I like it. You know, I arrived a little bit earlier this morning and I was able to be upstairs and had to check on some you know technical things and all that kind of stuff and I just sat down and <clears throat> you know I looked around and I saw people uh, coming in and beginning to gravitate toward each other. I just sort of watched it for a while and I looked over and I saw John Rubel and herb Taylor, for example, over, and they were you know hugging and talking and sharing their weeks and, you know, who was where and where they came and where they then arrived and, and all of that. And, and over here, then Sally Fries and Rita, were they were talking and chattering. And as I walked around, I saw different people just connecting relationally. And, and from that vantage point of being up there in the balcony, looking down on the congregation, it was really quite amazing to see. And... Um, You know, it was humbling and yet it was encouraging uh, to see that, in fact, the gospel has really taken root in this congregation. And uh, the fruit of that gospel having taken root is uh, then demonstrated and seen in the quality of our relationships that we have, Uh, first with God, to be sure, and then with one another. And then as we're able to influence and serve others outside and beyond ourselves, you see the full uh, orbedness of that calling uh, to be Christ and to uh, let him be known as we follow him in um, obedience. Uh, Last week, um, I want to follow on with what was shared last week. And it was really, if you remember, the wedding in Canaan and Cana. And uh, Jesus was there, and he turned a whole bunch of water that was for ceremonial purposes of cleansing, you know, and going through all of what they did. Uh, But Jesus changed that into wine of the highest quality. And then it was said of him that you uh, save the best until last. And as I thought about that, um, and then what was said last week that you actually uh, can't be religious and relational at the very same time. And I thought about that and sort of mused on it, and I think that's accurate. You see, uh, religion, uh, man's attempts to work toward having relationship with God uh, is not what Jesus came to give us during this time of year or for any time of year for that matter, uh, and if we um, begin if we don 't take time to um, pull back out of the scriptures some we 'll miss something extremely important. so let me just begin by that saying relationships being critical and crucial to the gospel, and turn back with me. You don't need to turn there, Ashley, but remember that in the, what was happening so far in the gospel of John is that uh, the evangelist John begins to say stuff like, in the very beginning, lights out, nothing. Phew. In the beginning was the Word of God, and the Word of God was with God, and the Word was God, and this Word eventually became flesh and lived among us. And John says things like, and we began to behold His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, Jesus then was heralded by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner. And you heard how God has called every man, every woman to be a forerunner, a, a, a herald, if you will, of Christ. And John the Baptist came and he began to uh, talk about Jesus. The, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, this Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And we begin to then be captured and uh, Captivated by the reality that this one coming, who was the living preexistent Word of God, made flesh in a person called Jesus, this Jesus was going to be significant, and he would be so much different than anything we had ever seen that it, we, we can 't really uh, even get our minds around it and then Jesus uh, was born in, with supernatural. Uh, uh, ways and and glory being uh, splitting the sky and the glory of God being seen around him and and then they find a baby in a manger and this baby then grows up and becomes this Jesus this uh, this Jewish man living uh, in Nazareth uh, born in Bethlehem and we begin to watch him and lo and behold he then goes to this. Uh, he was invited to a wedding, and he, he, he does his first miracle. And, and, and people are like, who is this Jesus? And, and now we come then into um, a, a second passage in the second chapter um, of John. And uh, when Jesus turned the water into wine, he was declaring something that the old system is no longer going to be meaningful, nor will it fulfill the deepest longings of the hearts of men and women. Uh, But there is coming something different, something new, something extravagant that will absolutely set the human heart on fire. And Jesus began to talk about the old diminishing and the new coming, and now we come to then a second passage of Jesus speaking about uh, newness, And we come to where Jesus cleanses the temple. Now, if we don't see that bigger picture, who Jesus was as the pre-existing word came in human form uh, in this person of Jesus who began to startle the crowds and talk about the old falling away and the new coming, we're gonna miss the intent of what he was saying in the latter portion of chapter two where he cleanses the temple. Read with me, beginning in uh, verse 13, and then we'll pray. Father... uh, Thank you for your love. Open our hearts. And Jesus then said, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We'll revisit that in just a moment. And in Jerusalem, during the time of the Passover, verse 14, Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and then the money changers, which allowed for the business transactions to happen, doing their business. Verse 15, And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and along with the oxen, and he poured over, he turned over the money changers' uh, tables. And he said to those who had sold, or who were selling, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of mere merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for my house has eaten me up. Verse 18, so the Jews then answered and said to Jesus, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Since you're acting this way, what sign do you show us? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews began to wonder and they said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken uh, to them. Father, would you enable us to grasp in some measure the revelation contained in this word so that by it We might not perform simply in forms, but in reality and in relationship with you and with one another. Thank you for your spirit whom you've given to us to dwell in us, to enable us to know, as your word says, all things. For we have, even now, the mind of Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So let me go back and just draw a couple of significant dots on the timeline and then try to connect them just a bit. Verse 12, uh, we find that, uh, verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, What we have in this text, I believe, is actually how rituals and how forms can occupy the center stage of our lives without us even really knowing it and actually blind us uh, from seeing and experiencing the deeper life that God is offering to us by virtue of offering to us His presence. So, the, the text then is about the forms and the rituals that men began to do because they were comfortable in their doing. They were familiar, but they had lost their meaning. Now, the Passover was important. You'll remember the Passover, Jesus, it says, uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was a significant and an important event and you know much about that event. I would speak of Exodus chapter 12. The people of God, Israel was in bondage in Egypt. They had been there for some 400 years serving the people of Egypt and the pharaohs. And then in verse 13, it, it says, or verse 3, every man, Moses said, God spoke to Moses and, and, and Moses then speak to, speaking to the people yet in bondage, uh, said that every man should take for himself a lamb according to his house, the house of his father, a lamb for the household. And then in verse 6, we're just going to walk a few verses of chapter 12 in Exodus. uh, Verse 6 says, Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So God said, find a lamb, and kill it just on the edge of darkness at twilight. In verse seven, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of that door and of that house. And verse 12 says, and God said, I will then pass over the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But this blood that you just put from the lamb on the doorpost and the lintels, verse 13, that blood shall be for you a sign on your house where you are. And God said, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and hence the name, the Passover, I will pass over you, and the plagues shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Passover was a big deal, if you will. The Passover was important because it, uh, it, it contained truths that when we rightly understand them and apply them to our lives, bring us into amazing freedom. Let me draw to your attention a couple of things. The Passover was where God delivered Israel from the plagues of death and darkness the Passover was where God determined that uh, he would bring his people out of bondage to Egypt, out of their slavery and into the freedom of their destiny. Now those of us from this point of view, from the new Testament perspective, some of us can begin to connect the dots. The blood of the lamb then would be the means by which um, the death angel would pass over us. Uh, The, 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 People, God were was brought out of bondage of Egypt and out of their slavery and into their freedom of their destiny, and that's exactly what God does for us through the coming next Lamb, the Lamb of God, who John says takes away the sin of the world. Uh, thirdly, the Passover was a powerful truth, contained powerfully important truths, because God provided the blood of a lamb, and that blood was a substitute. Without that blood being on your doorpost and your lintels, God would require the firstborn of every family to be killed. And yet, when God saw the blood of this lamb as a substitute, the life of the lamb would take the place of the life that would be killed. You see, Passover was a big deal. And, and those who were then in the temple were remembering. The Passover, because the Scripture says uh, that now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to the place of the celebration of Passover, and then the next Scripture says, and he went into the temple. Uh, he, verse fourteen, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, etc. Now, uh, th- the temple was also an important place in Israel's history. So just remember, first of all, the Passover and all of that which it meant in releasing people from death and darkness and bondage and bringing them into their destiny and their future, and now turn your attention to the temple. The temple was important because it, was, it contained intensely powerful images meant to point to the coming of a person. You see, all the religious life in Israel centered around the temple. That was the hub of spiritual or religious uh, experiences, if you will. It was the the center of the temple was the law that God gave uh, to Moses and through Moses. And one of the chief ways of operation within the temple was a subset of the law called the ceremonial law. So the temple was where people interacted with the law and interacting with the law, a portion of what they were interacting with was was this thing called the the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law required um, that sacrifices would be made. And see, that's what Jesus walks into now in the midst of the temple and probably in the outer court. He walks into the temple and he sees these these, uh, corrals probably of sheep and, and, and perhaps some goats, because goats and sheep were both allowed. Lambs of either were permissible in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. Uh, he saw cages of birds and, and oxen and those who were changing and selling them. And you see, Jesus then uh, drives out those merchants who were buying and selling in the temple. Now, I would suggest to you that the problem wasn't the buying and the selling. That was simple Commerce that enabled the worshiper who would require blood to be shed for him or her for that period of time, whether it was a dove if you were more poor or an oxen if you were more wealthy, you would purchase one of these animals. It was then brought in and ceremonially interacted with until it was finally destroyed and his blood was let and that blood would be sufficient for the sin of Israel and for your sin and the sin of the household for the next period of time it had to be performed again and again. So Jesus drives out the merchandisers from the temple, and the problem wasn't buying and selling. The problem was that men were holding to mere form rather than realizing these forms were meant to point to a person to bring them actually to Jesus. Everything God does is about relationship, but... Because relationships are sometimes hard, we revert back to what we know and what is more comfortable, and that is form and ritual rather than real relationship. But everything God was doing was about relationship, as we heard last week, and I hope you hear again this morning. Now, let me just interact, interject, if I may. Um, Neb Hayden. Are you here, Neb? I think I saw you back there. Yeah, he did the, the healing service on Tuesday. And I just happened to slip in there as I try to do as often as I can. And he was talking about the glory of God. And, it, and I asked the question to myself, knowing because I'm musing on this, I'm, I'm contemplating this text. And and he said, you, you remember that, that God from the very beginning had a purpose, that he would walk that he, we would be united with him, that we would be in relationship with him, and, uh, and, and, and something happened. And by the time uh, thousands of years go by, um, in the time when someone alluded to this morning, Stacy, the captivity came, where uh, the Babylonians came against uh, the southern kingdom, uh, that there were waves of people that were deported, and probably in about the second wave of deportation of the leaders of Jerusalem and and, uh, and the, the lower the southern kingdom, Ezekiel actually gets hauled off and taken to Babylon. So so Ezekiel was one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. And if you look at his book, you'll find it just before the minor prophets in the end of the Old Testament. Which is to say, while uh, Ezekiel was in Babylon, he has this vision. And you can read about it beginning in in, uh, Ezekiel chapter 8 and 9. But it really comes to its fullness in chapter 10 of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel's over here in Babylon, and God gives him a vision. And the vision is that the glory of God, representing the real, intimate presence of God, tangibly manifesting itself in our midst, begins to lift up and departs from the temple. And never again, really, you see little spatterings of where God's interacting with his people. You go through the Old Testament and through the minor prophets and you hear about the old and you hear about the coming of the new. But then for 400 years between the old and the new, there's silence and deep darkness is upon the face of the earth. The Old Testament image is that darkness was so deep and dark that it could could be even felt, tangibly experienced. Because God removed his presence from the temple, and when God removes his presence from the temple, what is left is simply the form and the function. The things we used to do that had meaning, God uh, began to show them that the blood was important, but when his presence uh, lifts, all we have is sacrifice and killing animals. The form is taking priority over relationship because God exited the scene. Now, in, for these hundreds of years, this darkness is upon the face of the earth, and finally um, out in the wilderness are these shepherdesses and shepherds, Neb said probably young pre-teens or teenagers because being a shepherd wasn't that respectable. It was the little kids were sent out to watch the sheep, just big enough to, you know, twirl a sling or wield a club or yell at something coming against the, the sheep. And all of a sudden, those shepherds are hanging out in the wilderness at night, and the darkness of God's presence had vanished the scene And in the glow of the fire that all they had and the amazing stars, I'm sure, that they saw on that light, suddenly, the Scripture says, uh, suddenly, uh, while there were shepherds out in the field, behold, an angel of the Lord uh, stood before them, the glory that had departed from the temple for the very first time, breaks open the night darkness, and they hear and they see the glory of God beginning to come back upon the earth. You see, and we read the scripture this morning, Dan Dan did a marvelous job at that. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid." They were afraid because he who had since departed was now beginning to make a proclamation that I'm coming back. And the, the, and, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid, behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be to all the people, for there will be born to you in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And with that announcement, suddenly it says, verse 13 of chapter 2 of Luke's gospel, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude, the entire multitudes, the invisible parties, those created beings, angels, and heavenly hosts all of a sudden begin to be instantaneously in the midst of the darkness. They begin to be seen in the light of God's glory. And they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. And so when the angel had gone away, the shepherd says, we better go to Jerusalem or Bethlehem and see this thing that the Lord has spoken. You see, God who had exited was now beginning to reveal himself for the very first time. And in the coming of Jesus, at the birth of Jesus, he would be one who would radically shake up and change the old. The old forms that had been so meaningful but had lost their value and their meaning because the presence of God had exited, Jesus was now coming and would radically reinterpret everything from this point on. And see, the problem wasn't the buying and the selling. I remember discussions, and I don't know that they're good or bad. I just remember discussions in years gone by where we would discuss, is it right to sell tickets to a concert out in the wherever, in the church? Is it right to do things like, well, recently bicycles were given? Isn't that sort of merchandising? And and I think in reality that misses the point because it's more focusing on the forms and the functions of those forms than what was the central reality of Jesus and that was relationship was inbreaking and the presence of God was coming back. See, in one of the most important statements in this section of John chapter two, when Jesus cleanses the temple, isn't that my house will be called a house of prayer or you've made a, a house of merchandising. I think the most extravagant and, and, uh, and, 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 and verse, if you will, pregnant with meaning is where the Jews then ask, what sign will you show us since you do these things? In other words, You just wrecked our old pattern. You just wrecked what we're doing. You've turned over. You've chased the oxen out. You've somehow braided a cord. You're whipping them. You're getting them out of the temple. You ran us out. What sign are you going to show us to validate why you're doing these things? Your son, you're in trouble. That was the implication of what they were saying. Jesus said, here's your sign. Destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. And their response was, this took took 46 years in the building, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Well, this is the most important statement, I believe, because Jesus was radically reinterpreting everything that they understood heretofore. And somehow God does that to each one of us, where he begins to radically reinterpret what we're comfortable with, with the forms that we hold on to when he does something new. Uh, Jesus was radically reinterpreting how one, in fact, is made right with God. Because heretofore, how one was made right with God is you buy a dove if you're poor, and you kill the dove, and the blood is then presented for you as a substitute. Heretofore, you buy a lamb and... You see, Jesus was beginning to radically reinterpret how one's made right with God, and then secondly, how the favor of God's presence could personally be received now by individuals, no longer through religious forms, but by receiving a person who was in fact alive from the dead. See, that's what he was saying. Raise, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And he went on to say, and this, uh, he was speaking... Of the temple of his body, you see, what Jesus was saying is that the reason He came was to change things. The reason Jesus came was to take the old, thereby to become, become so comfortable with the traditions of men and the rituals and religious minutia of the law. And was saying, God's now radically reinterpreting it all around a person. And when that person uh, comes, he'll change not just how we understand the temple and what we do in it, but he'll begin to change the hearts of men and women to be very different than they had been before. Jasper Meritz shared with me a a video not long ago, and on it they began to explain this notion of how one's made right. It's really the gospel, it's a presentation of the good news of the gospel. And what you find, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed man, men and women, Out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed, God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And this man, as God originally intended him, is this represented by this bottle. It's clear, and the purpose of a bottle being clear is so that you can see what's inside it. There are no surprises. And I have colored this water just blue so that you could see it. But you see, God created uh, man in his own image um, in order uh, for uh, the image of God to actually be seen. We, we carry the image of God even from the very beginning. Now, before sin entered into the world, uh, man, Adam and Eve, were created to display uh, this relationship that they had with God. And every one of us have been created with that very same purpose so that others can see God in us. And then we don't feel like that at times, but, but it's always sort of there. Well, you, you remember uh, what happened, and I don't need to go in too much detail over that, but God gave them a choice to... Eat of all of the trees of the garden, uh, in that garden, except one. And in the day that you eat of that one, uh, something will happen and you will die. And you know the story, uh, Eve ate and she gave it to her husband and all of a sudden things were changed. They were changed. And the scripture has a lot to say about that change that happened. The entire law was given to put what, that change under a magnifying glass because it, the law, would become a school teacher that would move us through our greatest problem, and that was uh, sin was no longer out there in the form of a snake. Uh, sin is no longer out there in the form of, of, of stealing, but sin actually came to dwell within God's creation. And and the scripture says that as uh, sin, um, through one man's offense, in Romans 5, death and judgment and condemnation reign through that one man. In other words, because you are human, created to carry the presence and the presence of God to move through you, uh, easily, we become clogged and disfigured, and not just our insides now where sin is, is in, but we, we have this sort of this. I better put the lid back on. We have that sort of this, this crushed notion that. Um, can anybody relate to that? See, that's what, that's what we look like when sin enters into the picture. It clouds the inside, it distorts the outside, and it begins to, we begin to limp through our life with this reality that sin is not just now theoretical, it's real. It colors how I think, it colors how I act, it changes the words that I speak, for out of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. It it changes my, my understanding of self, and it also changes my understanding of other people. So that if you're in a marriage, and if you're focusing on the old, all you're going to see is disfigurement, uh, fault-finding, and all of the other issues that flow out of being uh, crippled and, well, just tainted because of sin that now lives within us. And this sin passed to every human being. This is your reality. Now, along comes Jesus. We understand that Jesus came, and then he goes to a cross, and Many of us believe that because of the function of Passover, the blood, uh, by that God would pass over death and our sin. And because of what happened in the temple, the substitute of the lamb for our sin, the substitute of the turtle dove or the oxen, whatever it is, we understand that God will forgive us. But, you know, many of us. Whereas we believe that part of the gospel, I'm, I wonder if maybe 80% of the church in America, their understanding of the gospel is Jesus forgives me. He chooses, because of the blood of the sacrifice, to now see me as if I'm no longer a sinner. But in reality, I'm going to live the rest of my life like this until I finally get to heaven Beloved, if that's all there is to the gospel, I think we've missed the point. So Jesus then uh, begins to come. And in Romans 5, it says that through one man's offense, death, judgment, condemnation, reigned through this one man, Adam, and we all got it, all have sinned. But through one man's righteous act, Many will receive the free gift of God's grace and will become righteous. So onto the scene comes this Jesus in the beginning of the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He steps into human flesh, and we begin to behold his glory contrasted to my lack of glory. We began to be intrigued with this Jesus uh, who was the uh, exact representation of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this Jesus was doing things like changing water into wine and, and cast, you know, driving people out of the temple. And in the next chapter, we'll talk about how, how Jesus calls us to be transformed people through a new birth. But we look at Jesus and we go, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if we could be like that? Well, the scripture says not only was uh, through one man's offense, we all experience condemnation, but through one man's righteous act, those people, those many, will be made righteous. Now, bear with me for just a moment. Jesus didn't come just to show us what God looked like. Jesus actually came to take upon himself every spot and every drop of my sin. Now this Jesus, we're told in Isaiah 53, that he was bruised for our iniquity. Jesus was beaten in my place. And if I had a whole lot of extra room in here, I would crush him up because that's exactly what the scripture says. He Experience the disfigurement that I deserved, and by His stripes, we then become healed. So, so this this Jesus, uh, it says in Romans chapter six, some of the most profound scriptures to be studied in all of Scripture. Stacy, I'm so glad you're teaching. Romans. Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6, and Romans chapter 7 become the fulcrum on which not only the death of Jesus but the resurrection of Jesus becomes balanced. So this, this, uh, this Jesus, it says that if we are united with him in the likeness of his death... My stuff goes into Jesus. It says that we will certainly also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Now watch this. It isn't that you simply get your sin forgiven and then live a crushed and uh, um, unsavory life uh, fighting against your sin until you finally go to be with Jesus. That's not what Jesus intended Jesus actually took upon himself our sin. It says by his stripes that we are healed. That means he, took, he drank the full cup of what was crushing you and, and defacing you and demoralizing you and discouraging you. That which was resident in you was poured into him and he paid the price for your sin on the cross. You see, for if we died with Christ... The scripture says, we'll be freed from our sin. So this beaten, crushed, bruised man who took upon your sin and mine went to a cross, and on it he died. And we thought, well, that was the end of the story. But you see, actually it wasn't. Jesus said, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it again from the dead. You see, the reason why that scripture is so important is because if we leave Jesus just dying on a cross, uh, dying in our place, we're gonna live the rest of our life uh, looking like we're crushed in the image of God being tattered and torn around us and that is not what God has for you or for me. You see, this Jesus went to a cross but three days later, he rose again from the dead. He was, he was brand new. He was beyond the understanding that any, any the smartest people in here among us cannot fathom this thing called the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He really was crucified and his blood poured out. He really became the substitute for your sin. He really died for your sin. Your sin really died with him. Now, that's where we go, wow, really? No, your sin really died with him. You see, in Romans 6, it says, if we are united with him in the likeness of his death, we will also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus was crushed for sin, bruised, etc. And what Romans 6 then says is, he who has died with Christ has been freed from their sin. Why? Because Jesus died for your sin. Now, that doesn't mean you can't still do crazy things. But what it means is that God changes you on the inside. Now, how does he actually do that? You have this this crushed person. The image of God is broken. Our sin goes to Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, is raised from the dead. He begins to show himself to his disciples for some 40 days. And just before he ascends back to the Father in John chapter 20, he comes to a disciple. He said, hey, come over here, guys. And Jesus breathed on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to look just like Jesus. They begin to walk just like Jesus. They begin to talk more and more like Jesus. You see, the image of God is fully restored. Uh, Jesus said in teaching on the Holy Spirit, you know, it's, it's to your advantage that I go away, that I be raised from the dead and ascended into heaven because if I don't come, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, can't come, and, and you're going to live the rest of your life in defeat. But, brothers, when the Spirit of God is poured out, we become like Jesus. In fact, Jesus is living in us. We, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Where now is the temple of God? Hello? Where is the temple of God? The temple is in the hearts of people who have received the presence of Jesus, in whom Jesus is now living. The reason why we are the hands and the feet and the ears and the mouth, to shift metaphors that Paul talks about, is that Jesus is now living in us and he is expressing his life through us. Uh, Relationships become everything. Reckon yourselves, Jesus said, reckon yourselves dead to sin and now alive to God. Many in the church are still reckoning themselves, well, sort of dead to sin, but they're not very changed. Why? Because they're not believing what God has said that he would do. Not only did he die for our sin and in our place, but if we died with him, we were also also raised with him. And the pouring out of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus then becomes the means by which the life of Jesus begins to be seen through us so that every place we go, we bear the image of the one who lives within us. It's no longer you who live, Paul says, but Christ who lives in you. You see, in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. What does it mean to pass away? We use that term, so-and-so passed away. They passed from this life, and they died. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Everything that was old in you Has died. Now, this is about who you are in your identity. This is about what Jesus has done actually for you and in your place. This is about Jesus not just dying for your sin and taking upon himself, but Jesus being raised from the dead, now victorious, ascends to the Father, and now he pours out his spirit on all flesh. All flesh, because he's drawing a family to himself. Some of you might be here this morning and you don't understand that really this gospel is about relationship. Some of us have made it about form, some of us have made it about the function of what we do together, whether it's the kind of music we sing, or whether we take the offering this way or that way, or whether you serve on a committee, or you know, all that kind of those are all forms. But if they don't express the reality that Jesus is new in our heart, I wonder whether Jesus, who is now King of the Covenant, would come and wrap a cord and say, y'all need to change some things. What do you need to change this morning? Maybe you need to receive a fresh drink from Jesus. Maybe you've never really done business with the Lord of the temple. Your eyes have been more on the temple of the Lord. You say, well, how do I I do that? Well, you simply give all that you know about yourself to all that you know about him and say, God, would you make the swap, the exchange My life for yours, your life for mine, so that I might live, but not I, but Christ who now lives in me. Maybe you're here this morning and somebody brought you because you're, I don't know, visiting somebody for Christmas. And you say, I don't know that I've ever really invited, that means released my life to the full control of Jesus. Do you know you can do that and you don't have to live a life crushed under the weight of sin and trying to measure up? God just loves you the way you are. And he wants to fill you with his presence just the way you are. But all you need to do is open the door. The scripture says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. Isn't that good news? That the sorry rascal that I used to be no longer lives... You see, what died with Jesus was my sin nature. I used to have a hard time saying that. What died with Jesus is my sin nature. So that, I'll end with this, when I behave in a way that looks like the old way I used to live, meaning when I sin. I need to recognize that that's really not me anymore. That's my remembering how I used to be. Now, beloved, when you begin to change your understanding of who you are and what Jesus has done for you, it begins to change how you see your life, how you give your life to those things that you used to enjoy. How you go? No, I don't want to do that anymore. And when you sin, you simply go back to the Father and say, Jesus, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that that's not who I am. That's not my nature. You've given me a new heart. You've transplanted that old with the new of your presence. Help me simply to lay that down at your feet and trust you with who I really am. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you that you're not calling us like the early Jews to a life of form and function only. Help us to recognize that you've called us into a new spiritual reality where it's no longer us who live, but you, Jesus, who lives within us. The life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. Maybe you're here this morning and have never really understood that the old has died and you're struggling against the old. You're fighting with the old. I just encourage you to stop fighting and let Jesus come and mystically connect your life with his and his life with yours. Father, work in our hearts in this moment. We thank you, Jesus for your life and for your love for the radical transformation that you did by means of taking the old and turning it upside down and calling us into new life where you live in us and through us forever. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. I'm going to ask some of our elders and ministry team if you'd come and be up here in the front if you'd like special prayer this morning. If you want to You know, relationships at Christmas get real hard. I just remind you that who you are is really important and how God wants to use you to spread the love of Jesus to every hard relationship that you have. You come for prayer as we close with this final song.